Welcome, fellow true crime enthusiasts, to today's case file, Murder in Modesto, the State versus Scott Peterson. This is part five of a six-part series that will take a deep dive into the murders of Lacey Peterson and her unborn child, Connor Peterson, and the first-degree murder trial of Scott Peterson. Welcome to Body of Crime, your go-to true crime podcast, where we plunge headfirst into the gripping world of criminal mysteries. Join your hosts, Jose Medina, Crystal Garcia, and Alicia Anaya, as we deliver the full stories, immersing you in the heart of each case. With spine-chilling cases, in-depth analysis, captivating interviews, and a comprehensive examination of the evidence, embark on a thrilling journey with us as we explore bone-chilling cases from around the globe. Whether you're a seasoned true crime enthusiast or a fresh face in the genre, we guarantee to keep you on the edge of your seat. So put on your detective hat, grab your notepad, and get ready to dive into the thrilling world of body of crime. To recap our previous episodes in the Murder in Modesto saga, we will provide a quick recap for those of you who might be tuning in for the first time. We encourage you to go and listen to the first four parts so you can see how we got to the Scott Peterson trial in detail. And you can determine if you believe Scott is a mastermind criminal who succumbed to bad luck and poor acting skills, or if he is an unwitting scapegoat who is innocently in prison for a crime he did not commit. The world remains divided. On December 24, 2002, Lacey Peterson, a 27-year-old substitute teacher from Modesto, California, disappeared into thin air sometime between 9.30 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. on that Christmas Eve. The seven-and-a-half-month pregnant soon-to-be mother was last seen by her husband before he left home at 9.30 a.m. that morning to go fishing in the Berkeley Marina near the San Francisco Bay. Her husband, Scott Peterson, would discover her missing upon his return from his fishing trip that evening around 4.45 p.m., finding his dog in the backyard with the leash on. The back door unlocked and his wife was nowhere to be found. What would transpire over the next four months would be something made for television, as Scott would go from being a person of interest in her disappearance to a prime suspect very quickly. He would almost instantly develop an adversarial relationship, first with the media and then detectives investigating the disappearance, and finally with friends and family who could not understand his strange and suspicious behavior. Within a month of Lacey's disappearance, a girlfriend would materialize who would cooperate with detectives and began secretly recording their conversations. Scott's strange behavior would prove unsettling to anyone who witnessed it. He would go on live television and tell bold-faced lies to Diane Sawyer and be crucified by the media and portrayed as an uncaring villain in the story of his wife's and son's disappearance. In the end, the bodies of his murdered wife and their unborn son would wash ashore within miles of the Berkeley Marina. 
where Scott had supposedly spent Christmas Eve fishing, an alibi that the police and his wife's family found dubious, and authorities would move to arrest him once DNA confirmed the identities of the remains. He would be captured miles away from the Mexican border in San Diego, California, having altered his appearance and with the go bag filled with $15,000 in cash, camping and hunting equipment, and driving an unregistered vehicle that he had purchased in his mother's name. The detectives would unceremoniously return him to Modesto to face trial with his arraignment being the first domino to drop. Setting off the chain of events, that culminate in a death sentence. After being arrested in San Diego, Scott was brought back to Modesto to be arraigned. His arraignment was scheduled for the 21st of April of 2003, and it would be Scott's first appearance in front of a judge. It would not be his last. An arraignment is a formal proceeding in a criminal court where the accused is informed of the charges against them. Typically, this is the first stage in the criminal trial process following the arrest and the booking. The accused, often referred to as the defendant, appears before a judge or magistrate to hear the charges formally read out loud. The judge will usually ask the defendant to enter a plea, which could be guilty, not guilty, or in some cases, no contest. There have often been times where the defendant will not respond or remain silent, allowing the judge to enter a not guilty plea. This was most recently seen in the Kohlberger case. This is called a plea in absentia and is supported by the Fifth Amendment. During the arraignment, several important issues may also be addressed. For example, the matter of bail can be discussed, including whether or not it will be granted and what the amount will be. The court may also discuss legal representation for the defendant. If the defendant can't afford an attorney, this is where a court-appointed attorney is assigned to the defendant. In some jurisdictions, the judge may also outline the future procedural timeline, like the dates for the upcoming hearings or the trial itself. In Scott's case, the judge read the charges, two counts of first-degree murder. And Scott's response was, I am not guilty. Peterson pleading not guilty to murdering his wife and unborn son, so the Lacey Peterson murder case likely going to trial. Scott's parents visiting their son behind bars and complaints now from his former attorney that Modesto police were targeting Scott all along. For Scott, bail was automatically denied as capital cases, cases where the defendant can be given the death penalty in the state of California are not eligible for bail. As such, Scott would have to remain in jail at a minimum until the preliminary hearing. Although the judge set a date for the preliminary hearing, it would be moved multiple times for one reason or another, eventually settling on October 29th of 2003. The preliminary hearing in a trial proceeding serves as a sort of a mini trial where the prosecution presents evidence to establish that there is probable cause to believe that the defendant actually committed the crime that they're being charged with. Unlike a full trial, the standard of proof is much lower. They don't have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. The prosecution only has to prove that there is enough evidence to make it reasonable to proceed to a full trial. During the preliminary hearing, both sides, the prosecution and the defense, have the opportunity to present evidence and examine witnesses. However, the rules are generally more relaxed than in a trial. 
The defense also has a chance to challenge the prosecution's case, potentially exposing weaknesses that could lead to a dismissal or a plea deal down the line. The judge overseeing the preliminary hearing will decide whether there is sufficient evidence to bind over the defendant for trial. If the judge finds that there is not enough evidence, the charges could be dismissed, at which point the defendant would walk free. If there is sufficient evidence, the case proceeds to the next stage, which often involves formal arraignment on the charges followed by the trial process. On May 1st, 2003, Lee Peterson hired celebrity attorney Mark Garagos, replacing the court-appointed attorney that Scott had been assigned. Garagos had represented famous celebrities such as Winona Ryder and Michael Jackson. Originally, Garagos had claimed to be taking the case pro bono, but it would later be learned that the true cost was $1 million, and he would come back to the family for more money mid-trial. The Hollywood lawyer was flashy, crass, and fancied himself funny and a jokester, but the Rocha family did not find humor in the murder trial of their daughter and grandson. From the very beginning, Garagos began attacking the investigation, the detectives, and begging for a motion to dismiss. In criminal cases, a motion to dismiss may be filed for reasons like insufficient evidence, procedural errors, and how the case was brought or violation of the defendant's rights. For instance, if evidence was obtained legally, the defense attorney might file a motion to dismiss the charges based on that fact alone. In civil cases, a motion to dismiss may be filed if the plaintiff's complaint is vague or if it fails to establish a cause of action. During the hearing for a motion to dismiss, both sides usually have the opportunity to present arguments. The judge then makes a decision based on the law and the facts that he has at hand. If the motion is granted, the case is effectively over. Unless the prosecution or plaintiff decides to file an appeal or is allowed to amend their initial complaint to correct the issue cited in the motion. On May 4th of 2003, the day that Lacey should have turned 28, the family held a memorial service. What was dubbed a celebration of life for Lacey and Connor. Lacey and Connor's remains were still evidence and had not yet been received by the family, hadn't been released yet. In 1999, at the funeral of Lacey's grandmother, who had passed at an old age from cancer, Lacey had shared with her brother that she hoped people would not be sad at her funeral and instead be happy. Although no one could be happy considering the circumstances, they did the best they could to make it a celebratory event. Although Jackie Peterson and Lee Peterson, Scott Peterson's parents, were invited, as they were part of Lacey's extended family, they chose not to come. On June 3rd, Katie Cork traveled to Modesto and conducted an interview with the Roaches. It would be the last interview that they would conduct before the judge ordered a gag order. A gag order is a directive issued by a judge to restrict parties involved in a legal case from talking to the media or sharing certain information publicly. The primary purpose is to ensure a fair trial by minimizing pretrial publicity that could influence potential jurors and thereby taint the jury pool. Gag orders are often used in high-profile cases that attract significant media attention, as extensive media coverage can create a risk of prejudicing the proceedings. A violation of the gag order can lead to various penalties, including contempt of court charges, fines, or even jail time. The Petersons would violate the gag order multiple times without punishment, as they use the media to try to sway the court proceedings in Scott's favor. On August 8th, the judge issued a time limit for the defense to complete their examinations of the evidence. In this process, the defense is given access to all the evidence to be presented. They can hire experts to study the evidence and build their defense case. 
By August 11th, the forensic experts for the defense completed their examinations of the remains of Lacey and Connor Peterson, and although there was a gag order in place, the conditions of the remains were leaked to the press. Sharon began planning Lacey's funeral. On August 21st, Lacey and Connor's remains made it to Modesto, and they were taken to the morgue. The morgue was actually close enough to Sharon's house that she could see the building from her home and spent a lot of time staring at the building and wishing that she could be with her daughter. On August 27th, two days before the funeral, Sharon broke down, unable to take not being with her daughter, and was able to get the police to move the remains to the funeral home that night. That morning, Sharon arrived and spent the day with Lacey and Connor. Sharon had picked out a white casket with gold trim, and both Lacey and Connor had been placed in the coffin together. On August 29th, 2003, Lacey and Connor were laid to rest in a small private ceremony with friends and family. This time, the Petersons were not invited. Scott knew all along that if he was arrested, he knew he'd be facing a capital case. Right. He had made a comment during the investigation that if they arrested him, he'd be in there until after the trial. So. Well, remember, he did a lot of research. <laughs> That's what he told Diane Sawyer. He, he told Diane Sawyer he done researched it all. <laughs> In terms of the plea, I think this is really important because this is something that I didn't know until the Kohlberger case, is that you can actually just remain silent and not enter a plea and do a plea in absentia. What's been your experience with that? You don't see that very often. And yeah. I'm sure now that because the Kohlberger case is a high profile case, I think you'll probably see it some more now after this, but it's actually not very common. There was a serial killer who had also did a plea in absentia, wasn't it? Was, was it Ted Bundy? I think it was BTK. Was it? Yeah, it was BTK. And it was because he didn't know yet if he wanted to plead guilty or not. He wanted to save his family from having to go through a trial and hearing all the details of everything that had happened and had gone on. And then later on, he pled guilty. The judge reads the charges and the prosecution is looking for two counts of first degree murder. Right. One murder of Lacey, and then one murder for Connor. In your experience, is that common for them to file a charge of murder against an unborn child? At that point in time, no. This case ended up inspiring a bill to be passed or a law to be passed known as Lacey and Connor's Law. Until this case, I would say that this was really one of the big cases where this kind of became something significant. It says the Lacey and Connor bill, more formally known as the Unborn Victims of Violence Act, is a U.S. federal legislation that was signed into law in 2004, actually April 1st, 2004. Specifically, the law recognizes an unborn child as a victim if they are injured or killed during the commission of certain federal offenses, which includes crimes of violence and drug-related crimes. The term unborn child is defined in the act as a member of the species Homo sapiens at any stage of development who was carried in the womb. The Lacey and Connor bill does not apply to actions related to consensual abortion, medical treatment of the pregnant woman, or conduct of the pregnant woman herself. So as a mother carrying a child, if she was to do something stupid and become injured and lose the baby, she couldn't be charged with murder. 
And let's talk about the gag order. I think regardless of whether or not you stipulate that there's a gag order, people are going to talk. And I think people are going to take whatever information it is that they've either seen. So if you've done media interviews prior to them putting a gag order in place, I think it's natural for people to pay attention to that stuff. And naturally, whether people are out there talking about it and conversing and having, you know, conversations that allow for you to think and open your mindset to think about various possibilities. I think you're going to kind of do that in your head anyways. Yeah. But yes, in high profile cases, a gag order is common because what they try to do is they try to prevent certain information, such as the condition of the bodies from leaking out so that people aren't talking about it. So what's interesting is that, you know, you have them saying for the purpose of a fair trial, you know, we're going to put this gag order in place. And then who is it that breaks the gag order? The Petersons. You know, not the other side who could potentially do something that would impact a fair trial. Right. No, you have the person who should be counting on a fair trial who is breaking the gag order. Right. And one of the things that I noticed in this case with the judge is that he was very lenient on the defense and very strict on the prosecution. That's something that really stood out to me throughout the whole trial. And I say that because, for example, he didn't enforce the gag order. When they violated the gag order, there were no punishments for that. Uh, Mark Gregos was given the ability to kind of flaunt his jokes and be funny and witty and, and say inappropriate things in the courtroom. But on the prosecution side, they were checked aggressively. I don't know if the judge was either intimidated by the star quality of Gregos's defense or I don't know what it was that caused him to be kind of skewed in terms of how he handled the different lawyers. So there's a couple of things there that could be political, but it also could be. And when I say political, that could be because Gregos is very well known and thinks he's a great attorney. And so he's being a little bit more kind of catering to him a little bit. However, it also could be the case that the judge knows that because Gregos is involved, that there is a potential that anything that the prosecution does can harm the case and therefore was being strict with the prosecution to ensure that they didn't do anything that put the case at risk. Oh, that's, I never would have thought of that from that perspective. So basically what he was doing is he was being strict to avoid a mistrial. Right. I gotcha. Let's talk about Mark Garagos. What's your take on Mark Garagos? I know he's a high-end Hollywood lawyer, flashy, razzle-dazzle. What do you think about him? A lot of attorneys who we say are like flashy and razzle-dazzle. For instance, the attorney that was representing the Menendez brothers in their trial. She was very well-known. She had a ton of knowledge. She had you know, support staff who really assisted in ensuring that her cases went very, very well. And so it's almost like in a competition, like a jiu-jitsu competition, and you're looking up your opponent and your opponent has won first place for the last 10 years. It comes off as being a little bit intimidating, right? You're like, yeah. oh, this person's really good. So I think that razzle-dazzle with you know, Gregos is really about how good of an attorney he was. But was he good? Do you think that he was good? As an attorney, what they learn throughout time in covering different cases is what works and what doesn't work. Yeah. Based on who they're going against, what works and doesn't work. Because sometimes what works with one 
you know, prosecution doesn't work with the other. So I think he had gotten to a point in his career where he had really learned how to approach a case, how to deal with the media, how to use the media to his advantage. I'm pretty sure that there was some push there on his end, basically saying, hey, this particular judge isn't going to be likely to enforce this gag order. And so if we let something slip, this can work to our advantage. Right. I'm pretty sure like those are things that attorneys do they, yeah. they do that the first gag order was implemented by this particular judge and when they violate the order the judges would have changed by then so that's probably what you're probably right Gregos is probably like well that judge put the order in place but he's gone now so that order is not valid so do what you want and when, if this judge puts the order in place then we'll listen to it so we have a friend at the DA's office who prosecutes police who violate the law. One of the things that he explained to us when he was in criminal law prior to that and he had his own firm was about stepping into the courtroom with someone who you're defending and how most times it can come down to just who's the better storyteller. Who's better? And so... Razzle-dazzle can a lot of times work really well in your favor if you're a defendant. Right. Also, a lot of attorneys form good relationships with prosecutors, which help defendants when they're trying to make a deals, when they know that their case isn't going to go well based on the evidence. And so I think that all of those things are very important to look at. But I think in this particular case, for a judge who generally a judge has been an attorney for a good length of time and has represented clients on one side or the other, has either been a prosecutor um, and has gone after clients or has been, you know, on the other side of things. And generally they have a good awareness of both sides and they try to work to the best of their ability to ensure that the trial is fair so that it's not overturned. Right. And so I think that if a judge is being a good judge, then they're going to ensure that both sides are doing what they're supposed to be doing. And unfortunately, the way that the law is written, it's written in a way to where the fairness is really on the defendant. It's not on the grieving family who wants to see justice for their loved one. It's really about there being a fair trial for the defendant. Right. Unfortunately, when it comes down to it, a lot of the decisions that are made and a lot of times when you see some of the different things that come out, it's in support of that. Right. Now, Sharon, Lacey's mom, begins planning Lacey's funeral. Happy to have her daughter home. Right. She's not happy, but she's happy to have her daughter's remains. And initially when she received those remains, and, and this is a little side story on her getting the remains, but when they called her and told her that they needed to identify the body, she said, well, why don't you guys just use her dental records? And the detective had to explain that she was missing her head. And it was devastating for her to hear that. When... Lacey and Connor get moved from evidence in the Bay Area because that's where they had the bodies at and they got moved over to Modesto. They went to the morgue and Sharon was trying to get the bodies moved to the funeral home so that she could be there. She wanted to be in the presence of her daughter. She wanted to spend time with her alone. She was grieving. 
And they told her, they, we can't. There's no uh, freezers at the funeral home. So they had to keep her in the morgue. But the morgue was close enough to her house that she could actually see the building. And so knowing that your kid is just across the street and you know they're there, but you can't go to them was causing her to really struggle with the situation. And she finally was able to get them to bring the body over to the funeral home. And she went there and she spent a long time sitting with Lacey and, and Connor. And she asked a question when she got there to the lady who was running the, the funeral home. She said, are you sure that Lacey's in there? And when you lose someone, it's really difficult to come to terms with that loss without seeing them for yourself. Right. But the bodies were so decomposed and in so bad condition that seeing the remains could have been traumatic. It could have been devastating for her to see the bodies. And the, the person who was running the funeral home said, if you want, I can open the casket and you could put your hand inside and feel they're wrapped and you can, you can touch them. Um, but she didn't want to do that. She sat there and she cried and she said she was running her hand over the coffin and she could feel cold spots on the coffin from the body being frozen and being cold. She would kiss the coffin and she stayed in there with Lacey and talked to her and she kind of went through, like, you know, when they say when you die and you go through this whole viewing your life in kind of like a reel. Well, that's kind of what she did that day is she sat there and she recalled as many of the moments as she could of her and Lacey together since she was a baby all the way until the last time that she saw her. So they do have a, a celebration of life and the family speaks at that and they try to be joyous and they try to be happy and it's tough, but they get through that. But the Petersons don't show up to that. What's your thoughts on that? Honestly, I would see it as a sign of guilt yeah. as a family member. If that were my child and I don't care if her husband murdered her or not. If the family didn't show up, that tells me that you have guilt in your heart and that you're supporting a guilty person. Yeah. Because otherwise your love for somebody who's been in your life, who's become part of your family, that's part of your family. And for you to turn your back on your family, I don't think is. Yeah. Means you never it's, had him it's in your not, heart. Right. You didn't. Yeah. And so to me, that's drawing a line in the sand to me personally. Yeah. I don't know how other people feel about that. They might feel differently. They might feel like if you felt like you weren't wanted. And again, this comes down to if you've taken that person in as a member of your family, are you going to care what anybody else thinks? No, you're going to want to be there for your family. Yeah. Like, I really don't care what you think. I can spend an hour being in your presence, no matter how you feel or what you say, because I'm going to be there for that family member. Sharon didn't want to have a adversarial relationship with the Petersons. She knew that no matter what, Scott was their son and they have to love their son. They have to stand by him and go through the process. But that doesn't mean that Sharon is the bad guy. Right. It doesn't mean that her son and her daughters, you know, the rest of the family, they're not against the Petersons. No one put Scott in that seat. Scott put himself in that seat. Right. We're going to talk through this, and as we're going through, one of the common themes that you're going to start hearing is the amount of animosity that the Petersons show towards the Roaches throughout the trial. Calling them out, calling them names, 
starting to pick fights with them. It's really, really bad. They don't show up to the celebration of life. And then Sharon doesn't invite them to the funeral. And, and to me, when you said drawing a line in the sand, I agree with you. I think that's exactly what Sharon did. Sharon said, okay, you didn't come to the celebration of life. You don't feel like she was a part of your family. You're no longer a part of my family either. And she said, no, you're not coming to the funeral. And to me, I'm trying to put myself in Sharon's position right now. If you didn't show up for the celebration of life, I wouldn't want you to come to the funeral either. Yeah. And why? Because you're going to make it a press opportunity for yourself. One thing that I do want to share is that when they announced the funeral, Jackie sent a message to Sharon and asked her to postpone the funeral until Scott was exonerated of charges so that he could attend the funeral. Sharon said no. On October 29th, 2003, Scott had been living at the McGuire Correctional Facility for almost six months. At Scott's preliminary hearing as the trial was preparing to begin, Scott's mother, Jackie, swooped in from behind Sharon Rocha, Lacey's mother, and gave her a hug and told her she was sorry about Lacey. The once close-knit families had remained cordial throughout the ordeal, but Jackie and Lee, Scott Peterson's dad and mom, had often been insensitive to Sharon and had not moved to deal with Scott's behavior. They had not gone to Lacey's celebration of life ceremony and had not been invited to the funeral. Sharon had resorted to ignoring them. Sharon now thought Jackie was acting out for the cameras as the Petersons believed they had celebrity status because of all the media coverage of the case. Scott entered the courtroom in an orange jumpsuit with shackles. The evidence that was presented at the preliminary hearing included a strand of hair that had been found on a pair of wire cutters that had been located at the bottom of the boat that was purported to be Lacey's. Wiretapped conversations, dog tracking evidence, DNA, and then testimony witnesses, a timeline, etc. The first witness at the preliminary hearing was Dr. Constance Fisher, an expert on mitochondrial DNA. She reported that the hair strand on the boat could only match 112 people, including Lacey, and by process of elimination was therefore Lacey's hair. The defense attempted to throw it out, saying that originally there had only been one hair and now there are two hair strands. The hair broke while trying to remove it from the wire cutters. The next major witness was Margarita Nava, the housekeeper who testified that Lacey had been strong enough to carry in the groceries she purchased from Trader Joe's on December 23rd. Refuting Scott's statement that he had moved the bucket of water that Lacey had supposedly used to mop the floor because Lacey could not lift anything of significant weight. Amy Rocha, Lacey's sister, and Sharon both testified to their interactions with Scott on the day prior to the day of Lacey's disappearance. Amy had seen her sister on December 23rd when Scott had come in for his haircut. She had spent time teaching her sister to curl her hair. Sharon testified to Scott's statements as far as his behavior on the day that Lacey went missing. 
Lee Peterson took the stand and admitted to speaking with Scott at 2 p.m. on December 24th while Scott was at the Berkeley Marina. But Scott had not mentioned where he was and what he was doing at the time. On November 4th, Officer John Evers, who had been one of the first officers to respond on December 24th, testified to seeing the scrunched up rug near the back door that had appeared to look like someone had been drug over it. Scott had fixed it when they had asked why it was scrunched up, attributing it to the pets. His testimony had reminded Sharon of the pallet that Scott had placed against the back door. While Scott and Lacey had gone to Carmel on a vacation two weeks prior to her disappearance, Sharon had taken care of Mackenzie, their dog. When she had come to feed Mackenzie, she had seen the pallet and moved it away from the door, replacing the dog's bed close to the door in hopes of giving the dog access to some additional heat since it was cold outside. When Lacey and Scott had returned home, Lacey had asked if Sharon had moved the pallet and stated that Scott had kept it there for a reason. At the time of the walkthrough, the pallet had been moved and was resting against the fence. On November 6th, Detective Brocchini took the stand. He would testify for three days. He called out the tarp that initially was seen in the back of Scott's truck, and now two days later, it has been moved into the shed and covered in fertilizer. The boat cover had also been moved to another shed, and a leaky leaf blower had been placed on top of that. They knew Scott to be meticulous about maintaining his property as we evidenced by him placing a glove between his car door and his wife's car when searching for her cell phone. And the book that was used for the detectives to fill out the forms in the home to avoid damaging the table. He called out the two-day fishing license that was purchased on December 20th and dated for December 23rd and December 24th. Although he had stated in his initial interview that fishing had been a last-minute decision. The unregistered Mercedes Scott had purchased under his mother's name, pretending to be Jacqueline Peterson, was also brought up. Amy Craigbaum was a neighbor who testified that Scott had approached her the day Lacey went missing and stated that he had returned from golfing to find his wife missing. We would later learn that Scott told several people he was golfing that day. He would tell the police he went fishing and he would tell Amber Fry, his girlfriend, that he had gone duck hunting with his brothers. Detective Dodge Hindi testified about the residual cement in the warehouse and the evidence supporting that at least four other anchors had been made with the 90-pound bag of cement Scott had purchased. He had opted to buy a 90-pound bag of cement to make one anchor and claims to use the remaining cement on his driveway instead of buying a $30 anchor from the store after already purchasing an expensive boat for $1,400. The coroner reported the condition of the remains of Lacey and Connor. The family didn't attend those days, and even Scott was excused from attending. Lacey was found with no hands, no feet, and no head. Her internal organs were missing. She was wearing jockey panties, tan maternity pants, and a bra. Her uterus and cervix were intact, indicating she had not given birth. Baby Connor was almost fully intact with one arm partially severed but whole. In mid-December, Gregos attempted to pull a fast one. He requested a venue change, stating that they could not get a fair trial in Modesto due to the news coverage of the case. He was hoping to get it moved to Los Angeles, his stomping grounds and where he was more politically connected. 
Instead, it was moved to Redwood City, about 90 miles away from Modesto. On December 19th, Sharon files a $5 million lawsuit against her daughter's estate, ensuring that there is civil justice, if not criminal justice. The date for the trial was set for January 26th, 2004. It would be moved several times for several reasons, finally settling on June 1st of 2004. Two weeks after settling the date for the trial, Judge Aldo Gorlami, who had presided over the arraignment and the preliminary hearing, had stated that he didn't want to relocate to Redwood City to preside over the trial and handed the trial to Judge Richard Arneson. Then Judge Arneson was removed from the case and replaced by Judge Alfred DeLucci. We would see the jury go through similar changes, as well as both the Rochas and the Petersons prepared to face off in Redwood City. On February 11, 2004, instead of celebrating what would have been baby Connor's first birthday, Judge DeLucci began the Lamine hearings. Motions in Lamine are pretrial motions filed by either the prosecution or the defense to request that certain evidence be excluded or included during a trial. The term in Lamine is Latin for at the outset, which is fitting since these motions are typically addressed before trial officially starts. The idea is to set grounds for the evidence and testimony that will be presented, thereby preventing any surprises that could potentially sway the jury. Judges consider various factors when ruling on motions in Lamine, including the evidence's relevance, its potential for prejudice, and its probative value, or its usefulness in proving or disproving a point at issue in the case. These decisions can significantly shape the narrative presented during the trial, affecting the strategies both sides use. Gregos was requesting that the judge throw out the following. The wiretaps, Scott's interviews, dog tracking results, and GPS data. The movie, The Perfect Husband, was set to release and Sharon tried to block it from releasing. She could not stop it. She would later say that the movie was inaccurate exploitative and unnecessary and caused additional pain to their family. In March 2004, the two-month process of jury duty began. On March 22nd, Sharon flew to Washington, D.C., where she met with President George W. Bush to push the Lacey and Connor bill. Let's unpack that. The preliminary hearing is the first chance for the prosecution, really, to present as much evidence as they want to expose the judge to so that he knows it's worthy of a trial. Right. But it's also the opportunity for both sides to have things thrown out that can be damaging to their case right. before it even begins. So this is right. their opportunity to set the stage how they want to set the stage. Right. We already talked about the relationship between the Rochas and the Petersons, and we see it off of day one. Right. We see it right away. There's semantics. And you can also tell that Lee and Jackie don't think that Scott's going to be found guilty. And I think for a couple reasons. Not because he didn't do it, but I think it's because Gregos is the attorney. They think we paid a million dollars, he's going to walk. I think that's what they're thinking. Let's talk a little bit about the evidence 
that was presented at the preliminary hearing. The hair. The hair strand was really important because it puts Lacey in the boat. Right. In order to win a case on either side, there's certain things that have to take place, especially for a murder trial. You have to be able to show that the person was, one, where the person was at, right? The person who was who was killed. Some type of evidence to prove that they were there, that they did it. And so the things that are presented in the preliminary hearing are the things that will do just that. So it's not surprising that Gregos would try to have any of these things taken out because if right. he's successful at doing that and the jury never gets to see or hear any of that, the case against Scott gets weaker and weaker and weaker and they can't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. So that's what Gregos is trying to do. And I'm pretty sure, well, I'm 100% sure that prior to even going to the preliminary hearing, at this point, Gregos has listened to the tapes. Sure. And there's one thing that had happened. And so anytime that there's an audio recording, there's also a transcription that you can read on paper. And generally what happens is you'll read what's on the paper, right? And then you'll listen to it. And so Gregos had read what was transcribed on paper and didn't think it was very bad. When he listened to it, it was horrible. And he's right. like, this is not good. So I'm pretty sure that he went back to the Peterson family and said, look, guys, this is this is my plan. This is what we need to do. And this is why. Right. So I'm pretty sure that he had them thinking, OK, if he can go in there and he can get rid of the, the wiretaps, you know, we're going to be good to go. Because if nobody ever hears those, you know, even if they were to see the, you know, the transcribed messages, it's not going to be so bad. He's going to be able to handle that. Right. Now, keep in mind, there are wiretaps that were part of the conversation. And then there are the recordings that Amber did, which were not wiretaps. Right. So it's important to understand that there's a big difference there between what they're presenting. It wasn't the recordings from Amber. It was the actual wiretaps that they had on all the telephones. They had warrants for more than 80 wiretaps. They were wiretapping even the reporters, anybody, anybody who had any contact with the Petersons were being tapped. Right. Then the, the dog tracking evidence. Why do you think that was presented? Again, that has to do with being able to show either where Scott was or where Lacey was. And the reason that that's important is because if you have a dog tracker, a bloodhound, who's looking for somebody and they track somebody up to a certain point, or let's say that they, they Lacey had never been in the boat. We all know that, right? Shouldn't have ever been in the boat. So if the dog immediately went to the boat and smelled Lacey in the boat, well, that's pretty damning, right? Right. Well, if that's the case, then... He's not going to want that to be included. So he's going to look and say, okay, how can we get this excluded? Let me look. Right. And so, which is what he did. And when he went to look at the dog's tracking um, abilities and the accuracy of the dog's tracking abilities, he found that it wasn't 100% margin. Right. And because of that, he's like, hey, this isn't very reliable. Right. Guys. Let's pull this out. Right. And one of the things that he tried to do is they, they try to say that the what they used to scent the dogs, they set the scent on the dogs by bringing out a, an object that belonged to the person who they want the dog to find. Right. And so they're supposed to handle that very carefully and not cross-contaminating it. Let's say, for example, if I want a slipper of Lacey's and I go, hey, Scott, bring me a slipper. Well, since he touched it, the dog's going to hit on the last thing that he smelled, which would have been Scott because he touched the slipper. 
So that w- that's a way where something can be cross-contaminated. And they try to say that the item that was used to, to set the dogs on the scent was cross-contaminated and was not following Lacey, but was following Scott Peterson's scent instead. And that's why the dog went in the direction of the marina and not in the direction of the park because the dog never went in the direction of the park, which means he never went to the park. The dog went in the opposite direction like it was in a car. I know that during the prelim, the prosecution is not going to pull out all its guns. No. It's going to keep some stuff in reserve. But part of that is this, is that so they get discovery, which means they're allowed to see everything that each side is going to put forward. And again, because of how the law is written, this has to do with there being a fair trial. And because of that, it's kind of geared more towards the defense having the upper hand, right? The upper hand at all points in time. So to say that the prosecution can't pull out all of their they would have to be strategic on their end in that regards because evidence can be thrown out if they try to keep something. Right. Um, but I'm not saying that they're not sharing things through discovery. I'm saying that they're not putting all their witnesses on the stand. They're not putting all the evidence out. They're sharing it, but they're holding some of that stuff in reserve because they've got a strategy that they're going to deploy. Right. And they're going to bring certain things out at certain times. And so what they're putting out there to the judge is enough to say he had the motive Right. He had the opportunity. He was the last person to see Lacey. He was at the marina right. where she was found. The DNA matches. That is his son. They're painting the picture to say, look, there's enough here to go to trial. So now it's a matter of building up your case and the defense going, what do we think their case is going to be? And how do we discredit that case? Right. And how that works. You're looking at each other's game. You already know how Garagos works. And so they're going to be able to look and say, okay, well, in every one of the cases that he's ever done, this is what he does. First, he tries to discredit. Then he tries to do this. Then he tries to do this. And so they're going to strategize on their side to go against what his game plan is. Same as he's going to try to do. So if he's ever worked with these prosecutors before or has not, and he looks at some of the cases that they've done, he looks to see, okay, this is is how they typically strategize. So this is how I'm going to counter that. Right, right. I gotcha. The hair in the bottom of the boat. When they present the hair at the bottom of the boat, it's wrapped around a pair of pliers that's been salt water soaked. The defense is going to say, oh, Lacey was at the warehouse because she was a few days before she went missing. Curling her hair with pliers? <laughs> Maybe. But Detective Brocchini would say that the warehouse was not passable. You couldn't get through the warehouse to the bathroom in the back. It was just full of stuff. Pallets and pallets of fertilizer and stuff, like, you know, all kinds of stuff. The defense is going to try to say, Lacey saw the boat, she was in the boat, and that's how the hair got there. But the hair was in the bottom of the boat, and it was wrapped around pliers. It wasn't on a seat, or it wasn't in the water, or it wasn't, it wasn't this loose out there. It was wrapped around a pair of pliers. And to me, that's damning. And when they tried to remove it, it actually ripped the hair and turned it into two strands. And Gregos tried to say that they planted an extra strand of hair. That was his argument. We got, they tried to throw it out because it was originally just one strand and now it's two. So it's been planted. So it's been compromised, so to speak. But they kept that in. That would have been damning to the case. Yeah. He knows it that. Been. Yeah. So for them to throw it out, he's like, that's one less thing I got to worry about. Right. They, they would have said, there's no evidence Lacey was ever in a boat. Right. Yeah. 
We already know Amy Roach has testified about uh, the day that Scott came in and got his hair cut. And I think part of her testimony was important because she talks about what her sister was wearing. And one of the things that I discovered is that the blouse that she wore on the 23rd during the second search warrant of Scott's house, they found that blouse. It was dirty and it was scrunched up and it was in the drawer of Lacey's clean clothes. Weird, right? That's where I put my dirty clothes. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely something a guy would do. (laughs) (laughs) Detective Brucini did a lot of investigating. I think he did a great job. I think he did a great job as well. He he gets it hard during the trial, and we're going to talk about it. He he gets beat <laughs> down during the trial, and I felt really bad for him during the trial. Um, but, but you know what? That's something that I want people to keep in mind when they think about how investigators go about doing certain things. This is exactly why. He's a perfect example of why they try to follow to the T what they're supposed to do and not to do and when they're supposed to do it. This is exactly why. He's a a good example of why. Right. Well, obviously he was there on day one, which gave him a huge advantage. I want to talk about Gregos, his quick pull on trying to pull the the trial to L.A. I seriously believe that if he would have got the trial moved to L.A., he would have had a better chance of winning. Well, of course, because what happens is this. So if you're an attorney who's used to working with particular judges and particular prosecutors, y'all are friends, y'all go hang out, y'all go drink together after cases, you develop relationships and you know how each other works and it works to your advantage on both sides, on both sides. So it's no wonder that he would want to take a trial to a place that's in his backyard. Right. And so for the sake of having a fair trial, it shouldn't be in either's backyard. So I think the smart thing was to put it where it wasn't in either's. Yeah. I think the right thing happened in this case. Yeah. They later would complain that it wasn't far enough. That's one of the things that they would complain about. And Redwood City is, is in between San Jose and San Francisco. That's where it's at. Selecting the jury began in March and was a two-month process. What is it that we should know about jury selection? Typically with jury selection, there's, you know, the prosecution and defense are included, right? So a jury isn't selected by one side, the other side, or some anonymous individual. It's a collective effort. So any time that you have a jury that's been selected and you say, oh, that wasn't a fair jury, that shouldn't be the case because both sides have the opportunity to have a piece in that. And so one of the things that they did in this trial was they developed a sheet. They were trying to be quick with how they were selecting and making sure that it was fair. And so they developed certain questions that they would ask everybody so that it was the same and it was fair to determine whether or not they would even be a potential juror. And so they both agreed. So that happened early on. They both agreed. This is what's going to be contained in this. So it was a collective effort. So every person who is added to the jury is agreed upon by both the defense and the prosecution. Right. Okay. Obviously, the prosecution is going to look for people that are going to be softer on their side, and the defense is going to do the same thing, right? And so they're all trying to get the right team 
together to win the case. Do you think any mistakes were made with selection of the jury? I don't think intentionally. I think the mistakes that were made were just out of air of a case of that magnitude. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think that either side was trying to create a situation where the trial would be unfair. I mean, that's not a good win. If either right. side wins to right. have it thrown out, to have your, any piece of it thrown out isn't a good look for either side. So they're definitely right. not going to go into that trying to pull a fast one. And then we're going to see that there's going to be some turnover in the jury. Right. Either for them doing something wrong. Maybe somebody feels like they're not the right person for the job, like things like that. That's going to happen. Right. And just to kind of give you an idea of kind of what comes into play when the jury is being selected is let's say that it's a case of, let's say a, a race issue. So let's say that this is a, a white police officer who beat an African-American man. Well, if the whole jury is a white jury, that's not going to seem like a fair jury, right? So those are the kind of things that they're trying to prevent from happening. So it's supposed to be a jury of your peers, right? Um, same with religion. If there was some type of religious issue, and let's say that the person who's on trial is highly religious, and then you have a fully atheist jury, there's going to be an issue. Like, that's not going to be fair. Right. So those are the types of things that they're trying to prevent. And trying same with balance it. Right. And same with sentencing. So if this is a capital punishment case and you know that the death penalty is going to be on the table, they're not going to want a, a jury full of people who um, are not for the death penalty. One of the questions that they were asking, could you make a decision based on the evidence for a capital case to give the death penalty, regardless of what your personal opinions are on the death penalty. Are you able to make that decision? Right. And that was included Okay. on that. So gotcha. not that you have to be for it, even if you're against it, you have to be willing to give that as the punishment if that's the decision. Right. To still basically follow the guidelines that you're following as being part of that jury. Right. You couldn't say, well, no, I don't want to give them death because I don't believe in it. You'd have to say, no, I don't want to give him death because he had a hard childhood growing up. He had, you know, he was sexually abused. He was this, he was that. Like, then that would be the extenuating circumstances for a, a reduced sentence to life in prison as opposed to death. Right. I gotcha. Makes sense. So as we bring this first portion of the trial to close, what final words do you have? considering everything we talked about. We talked about the arraignment. We talked about the pretrial activities that are going on. We talked about denial of bond. We talked about the movement of the case to Redwood City. And then we went through the preliminary hearing. Before we get into the actual trial, what are your thoughts on the case? So there's just one thing that I want to point out when they're discussing the anchor and why this is important and why there's been some discussion about the anchor. So Scott Peterson said the reason that he chose to make an anchor was because it was cheaper than buying one. Now, if we look at the time value of your time and money and how much you make, it was probably very expensive for him to buy um, concrete mix and make the anchor as opposed to just buying an anchor. But by getting concrete mix, you can make more than one. And now you don't have a receipt showing that you bought five anchors. Now you can say, you got it and you made one. Right. 
in the next phase of the state of California versus Scott Peterson, we're going to get into the trial. And then we're also going to get into the sentencing phase. And we're going to find that the relationship between the Roaches and the Petersons unravel fast. Gregos becomes the grandstanding showman that he is. The defense will start with a very boring case. But ultimately, things will shift in a surprising turn of events. And that's a wrap on today's investigation, fellow detectives. If you found this episode both enlightening and captivating, then please subscribe to our podcast show and our Patreon. Leave a review and hit that like button. Share our podcast with others and engage with us on our website and social media platforms. You can find us on all major podcast platforms as well as our website at www.bodyofcrimepodcast.com where you can access all of our episodes and bonus content, including valuable resources. By expanding our community, we believe we can make a greater impact in our pursuit of truth and in shedding light on crucial cases. If there's a case that you'd like for us to cover or a personal story you'd like to share, please don't hesitate and contact us through our website. We always welcome your feedback and suggestions. Until next time, stay sharp, and thank you for tuning in to the Body of Crime Podcast. Podcast. Bye.